Uh, Charles Spurgeon was a British pastor for 38 years, and uh, in a sermon from Hebrews, uh, he once said this about the warning passages. He said, God preserves his children from falling away, but he keeps them by the use of means. Suppose there's a deep precipice. What's the best way to keep anyone from going down there? Why? To tell him that if he did, he would inevitably be dashed to pieces. Or suppose our friend puts away from us a cup of arsenic. He doesn't want us to drink it, but he says, if you drink it, it will kill you. Does he suppose for a moment that we should drink it? No, he tells us the consequences and he's sure we will not do it. So God says, my child, if you fall over this precipice, you will be dashed to pieces. What does a child do? He says, father, keep me, hold me up and I shall be safe. It leads the believer to greater dependence on God, to a holy fear And caution. Spurgeon's words help. Warnings serve our perseverance. Sadly, though, it's it's not uncommon for Christians to recoil from warnings in Scripture. Warnings sound harsh. Perhaps we worry that it undermines our assurance. Sometimes it may be the result of our own questions, like, how does God's purpose to preserve his elect square with the real threat of judgment spoken to the elect? Or maybe we've reduced the gospel to include those motivations that we really like, grace, justification, promise, hope, while neglecting other motivations equally important such as lordship, warnings, the threat of judgment. For whatever reason, to recoil from Scripture's warnings is detrimental. To abandon one of God's means to keep us... It's it's to abandon one of God's means to keep us faithful. According to Colossians 1.28, alongside teachings, warnings actually help the church onto maturity. And so we shouldn't neglect the warnings. Far better, we must listen to them. We must receive them. We must pray, Father, use them to produce greater dependence on you and a holy fear and caution. We've come to another warning passage in Hebrews. It's part of a, a much larger argument that stretches from chapter uh, 3, verse 1, all the way over to chapter 4, verse 13. Already we've seen how Jesus is greater than Moses. That was verses 1 to 6. And that connection remains crucial. He's, he's, he's going to bring out a parallel. Moses delivered the people from bondage and then he led them through the wilderness toward rest in the promised land. Also, Jesus delivered us from bondage and he's leading us toward rest. 
But it's a better rest than the promised land. It's the better country, the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem. And that analogy kind of sits in the background here of of Hebrews chapter 3. And he develops it from Psalm 95. And the point is to help us persevere in between redemption and inheritance. In between the cross of Christ and the final rest that we will experience in the Father's presence. Chapter 4 will focus more on that promised rest. That will be next week. But verses 7 to 19 here in chapter 3, they focus on a warning that's also embedded in Psalm 95. Before reading how Hebrews applies that warning to us, let's actually read Psalm 95 itself. So if you just stick your finger in your Bible in Hebrews 3 and turn to Psalm 95. Psalm 95, that's on page 499 if you're using a pew Bible. Psalm 95 summons us to worship the Lord. Twice he says, O come, let us sing or worship, verse 1, and then again in verse 6. The reason to worship, though, is slightly different in both cases, but related Okay, the Lord is worthy of worship, first of all, because he is the creator king. He made all things and he upholds them. This is verses uh, 1 to 5, right? O come, he says, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For... The Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. In His hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are His also. The sea is His, for He made it, and His hands formed the dry land. And then we get a second reason why the Lord is worthy of worship. He is the covenant Lord. The covenant Lord. He didn't just make the earth. He also made His people. Right? His covenant people. He, he brought them into existence by election and redemption. Uh, verse 6 says, O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker, for He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. It's not uncommon for the Old Testament to describe the Exodus in ways that recall God's creative work. In other words, the Exodus itself was like a new creative work, like a second work of creation. Only in this case, God works to redeem a people and bring them into a new garden-like paradise in Canaan. The Exodus was but step one along the way. And so when it says, let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, he has in mind more than God as creator, but God as covenant Lord. Okay, the God who brought them into existence as a people into relationship with himself. The shepherd imagery also gives us a nod back to the Exodus story. God relates to his people as a shepherd rescues and cares for his sheep. 
So he's creator king in a general sense, and he's also covenant lord in a very special personal sense to the people of Israel. And so the people must come and sing and shout. They must bow down and kneel. He created them, oh oh yes, but, but he also redeemed them. And by the end of the psalm, we realize that he redeemed them to bring them into his rest. His rest in particular, not theirs. Hebrews 4 will say that it's a rest that's far greater than what Israel ever experienced in Canaan. Canaan only foreshadowed a a greater rest to come. It's a rest that all creation groans for. It's a rest from all sadness and sorrow. It's a rest in the very presence of God. And yet, the Lord forbid many in Israel from participating in that rest. Look at the end of verse 7 now. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day of Massah in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For forty years I loathed that generation and said, They are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore I swore in my wrath, They shall not enter my rest. Now the name Meribah means quarreling. Quarreling. And the name Massah means testing. They were place names. And they described how Israel treated God. For years the people were enslaved. Egypt treated them cruelly. But God saw their state. He had mercy on them. He even adopted them, called them his son. And then he set his love on them. And he appointed Moses to lead them. He he then delivered them from slavery with a a mighty uh, outstretched arm with signs and wonders. But not too long afterwards, the people grumbled and complained. God had saved them. He took care of them. Again and again, he proved his love for them. But then they grumbled against Moses, the Lord's appointed leader. And they also despised their deliverance. The Lord was leading them to a better rest, but but they wanted to go back to Egypt. They tested the Lord. They quarreled with him. And so Moses names the place Massah and Meribah. And you can read of it in Exodus 17 and Numbers 20. In fact, those two points, Exodus 17 and Numbers 20, form bookends of sorts. Meaning the people didn't just act that way here and here, but everywhere in between. It was characteristic of their journeys in the wilderness. And so God swears in Numbers 14, he says, As I live, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs and yet not obeyed my voice, none of those faithless people shall see the land that I swore to their fathers. Now, why bring up that story Hundreds of years later in Psalm 95. 
Why does he recall a story that happened way back then? Why does he recall it for a new generation? What's God saying to the people? Well, we need to notice that in Psalm 95, he's talking to a people already in the land of Canaan. They're already there. They're already in the land of rest. And yet they haven't quite made it into God's final rest, have they? In fact, they won't participate in God's rest if they choose to harden their hearts like the wilderness generation did. He's saying, remember what God did to them? Remember what God did to those who rebelled? Besides Joshua and Caleb, who were faithful, he killed them off. He judged them. He kept them out. He made them perish in the wilderness. And now he speaks to this new generation already in the land of Canaan. A generation already in the so-called land of rest. And he says, today, if you hear God's voice, don't harden your hearts. If you harden your hearts, he will forbid you from entering his true rest. How about that for a call to worship? Hmm? The point seems clear, though. To go through the motions of worship without a heart of worship, without a willingness to obey God, is utter folly. A heart hardened against the Lord will exclude you from, true, from His true final rest. A heart that despises His appointed covenant leader, a heart that's unmoved by God's past deliverance, that kind of heart will exclude you from God's final rest. And now the writer of Hebrews notices that Psalm 95 reflects on the wilderness rebellion and then uses it to warn a later generation of people. And in particular, he notes the use of the word today and then also my rest at the end. And you can almost see the wheels turning in Hebrews chapter 3 and 4. It's it's right there on, on, on on the page. In terms of my rest, right, there must be a rest beyond Canaan since the people that Psalm 95 speaks to are already there. And in terms of the word today, it must mean that God still speaks to his people in the present through that past Exodus narrative. And so he puts the two and two together and he uses the same reasoning for the church. Also God's people. Also a later generation. Also a people redeemed from bondage. Also a people heading to the true rest. The big difference for us, of course, is God's final revelation in Christ. In Christ, we now see the true significance of the Exodus and the covenant and the promised land and the rest. Christ says, come to me, and I will give you rest. And Christ then becomes our Passover lamb. He becomes our covenant leader. And through his cross, Christ provides the ultimate 
deliverance. We're all in bondage to sin. Even worse, we like these chains. We prefer them. That's how bad it is. We lack the ability to get out of them. We're helpless and deserve to die in those chains. But like he did with Israel, God shows mercy. He sets his love on us. He adopts us. He makes us his own. He sends his son to rescue us from that bondage. And through Jesus' death on the cross, he breaks the power of sin over his people. He is God's ultimate leader. Out of that bondage to sin, he leads us into a better rest. Christ opens the way into God's final inheritance. The ultimate rest before his presence and glory. We know that. And as we journey to the true rest in God's kingdom, we look back on that ultimate deliverance and we celebrate on our way to glory. But to whom more is given, much more will be required. If God's greater revelation has come in Christ, how much more seriously should we treat His Word? Right? If the consequences for grumbling against Moses were that great, you cannot enter my rest. How much worse will they be For grumbling against Christ. He's better than Moses. We just covered that. How much worse will it be for us to to look back at his great deliverance and say, No thanks. I'm not impressed. Give me sin instead. I'd like to escape hell, by the way. I'd like your forgiveness. I'd like your blessings. But I really don't want you, God. He's the whole point of the rest. He is our rest. How much worse will it be for us to look at Jesus' cross that way? To be unmoved by his great love. And that's where he goes in Hebrews chapter 3. So turn with me now to Hebrews chapter 3. This is how he develops things. I love this connection between Psalm 95 and the wilderness generation because what we're seeing is that the New Testament writers use the Old Testament in the same way the Old Testament writers use the Old Testament. They patterned it after them and their Lord Jesus. And you can just see it developing on the page. So we're in Hebrews 3, verse 7. He begins with, Therefore... And that looks back to verse 6, where he says, We are God's house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence. Now drop your eyes down to verse 14. He reiterates the same point. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Now we talked about this some last week. But it seems best to read verse 6 and verse 14 as evidence to inference conditions. Evidence to inference conditions. Not cause to affect conditions, but evidence to inference conditions. 
If she has a ring on her left hand, then she's married. Right? The ring didn't cause her to be married. It's the evidence that she's married. Okay, so also here. Holding fast is the evidence that we belong to God's house. Holding fast is the evidence that we have come to share in Christ. Point being, true Christians will persevere. True Christians stick. A faith that doesn't endure isn't a true faith. Therefore, he says, don't harden your hearts. Verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear God's voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation And said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Now, a few things to consider before moving to verse 12. We're dealing here with a pattern of stubborn rebellion. Verse 10. They're always going astray in their heart. Always. Right? The stress falls on the pattern of their repeated stubbornness. They observed God's works for years and they still rebelled. Right? They saw the Red Sea split. They saw the fire atop Mount Sinai. They drank the water from the rock. They ate the manna from heaven. They gathered the quail. They watched the glory cloud descend. They watched the earth swallow Korah's house. It happened right before their eyes. And yet, they still complained. All the evidence necessary to trust the Lord, the Lord gave it to them in plenty. And yet, they hardened their hearts. Evidence helps. But their problem was far deeper. It was a moral one. They suppressed the truth. They preferred Egypt over God's kingdom. They ignored God's word. They serve the idols instead of the true and living God. And so God forbid them from entering his rest. There was nothing more they could do. He swore in his wrath, they shall not enter my rest. The end for them. Get this. Neither Psalm 95 nor Hebrews lets us believe for one second that we're immune to the same rebellion. You're not immune from looking at the cross of Jesus, seeing it for what it is, and then hardening your heart against the Lord's Word. You make it such that truth, you make your heart such that truth and beauty and goodness can no longer penetrate it. You're unmoved by God's love. You become indifferent to His greatness and glory. 
Christians encourage you and you shrug your shoulders like, big deal. As long as there's a today preceding God's final rest, we're vulnerable. You'll be just as vulnerable on January, 20, January 5th of 2021 and 2031 and 2051 if God does not send his son back. At the same time, as long as there's a today, the door remains open for you to act and to change. And so he says in verse 12, Take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you, you see that? Any of you, We're all vulnerable. I'm vulnerable. Your elders are vulnerable. We're not super Christians. We feel our weakness every day. And if you don't feel that weakness, watch out. Take care, he says, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart Leading you to fall away from the living God. Take care. Or I like this translation. See to it. I'll show you why I like that translation. Because there's a connection here in the text. See to it, right? What, what are we supposed to see? Well, he tells us in verses 16 and 19. He reflects further on Psalm 95. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? Verse 19, so we see. We see something, right? Get the connection? Take care or see to it, brothers, verse 12. Now verse 19, so we see that we're unable to enter because of unbelief. Moses got them out of Egypt. Unbelief kept them from entering the promised land. And that's why he says in verse 12, take care lest there be in any of you An evil, unbelieving heart. Unbelief will lead you to fall away from the living God. And that translation, fall away, conveys a somewhat passive idea sometimes. In reality, it's more active here. A better better translation would be forsake. Like the, uh, the New English translation has. It's a deliberate act of despising the Lord's revelation. It's it's a heart that looks at the Lord's mighty acts of mercy and His mighty acts of judgment and it says, not impressed. I'll keep doing things my way. Give me Egypt over God. Give me the fleeting pleasures of sin over God. Give me freedom from kingdom hardships over God. And that kind of heart, he says, is evil. It wants idols over the living God. And it all stems from this unbelief. From not believing that God is the superior treasure. That Christ holds out the superior promise. 
It doesn't matter what prayer you said when you were six if you don't give a rip about His kingdom now. Nor does it matter what decision you made to follow Jesus at 20 or 30 or 60 if you find yourself unmoved by His kingdom and its values. If you harden your heart against the living God, He will forbid you from entering His rest. You will prove that you were never a sharer in Christ to begin with. And so He says, take care, brothers and sisters. Lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to forsake the living God. Now maybe you're asking, you know, how can I tell if that's my heart? John Bunyan's uh, Pilgrim's Progress was a great help for me here. And in it, he, you have these characters, Christian and, and Hopeful. And uh, they get in a discussion, I think, over Mr. Indifferent. And uh, they're discussing what, what characterizes those who harden their hearts. And uh, being in, it's in older English, let me paraphrase what Christian says to Hopeful. He says, well, first, in their thought life, they stop thinking about God and death and the judgment. They stop thinking about those things. Second, gradually they they cast off private duties such as prayer, curbing their lusts, watchfulness, you won't find sorrow for sin and the like. Third, they shun the company of lively and warm Christians. They find others drifting away just like them. Fourth, they grow cold to public duties such as hearing the preached word, reading scripture together, godly fellowship and the like. Five, they begin picking holes in others who are godly. And this is to justify their own actions and pattern of living. And next, they begin associating with those who are worldly. It works out especially well if those same people have some degree of honesty in the eyes of others. It seems to justify the trajectory. Well, if they're doing it, they seem to be good people. And then eighth, they begin to play with little sins openly. And nine, being hardened, they show themselves as they are. Thus being launched again into a guild of misery, he says, unless a miracle of grace prevent it, they everlastingly perish in their own deception. You know, Jesus spoke about people like this in his parable of the four soils. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. With joy. And yet he has no root in himself. He endures for a while. 
And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. How do we keep that from happening? It's not by sitting back on our laurels and saying, hey, once saved, always saved. I'm good. I don't have to worry about that. That's not the humble disposition of the elect. We receive this warning with the utter seriousness that God means it. We shouldn't think too highly of ourselves. As Paul says elsewhere, in a, in a, in a very, applying the scriptures in a, in a very similar way that Hebrews does here, he says, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. That's how we need to receive this word. We receive it with a holy fear and a caution, leaning further and further into our Father's good care. And then together, we participate in what verse 13 says. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Sin deceives It's tricky, too. It doesn't just tell outright lies. It uses half-truths. It lures you with promises. They're false ones, but they're promises. And they look nice and rewarding. They lure you with pleasures, but they're empty. It asks questions. To cause doubt. Did God really say? It may even quote scripture. As a way to disguise the truth of a matter. Just read of Jesus' temptations in the wilderness. And once sin deceives. The heart hardens. And it becomes stubborn to receiving the truth. And that hardened heart then leads to unbelief. And unbelief leads us to forsake the living God. And what keeps that from happening? Exhorting one another every day. That's sobering, isn't it? Every day. There's not a day that goes by in which you're you're not vulnerable to sin deceiving you. Not a day. Every day we need to involve ourselves in exhorting others and receiving exhortation from others. The today isn't up yet and it won't be up until Jesus returns and brings us into the Father's final rest. Until then, beloved, exhort one another. What, what, what purpose does exhortation serve? Well, this one, he says, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So exhortation keeps us from sin's deception. As others have put it before, perseverance is a community project. That's your application. 
Hebrews makes it really easy. Perseverance is a community project. Exhort one another. You need exhortation. I need exhortation. How often? Every day. According to me, the introvert, I don't need you talking that much. According to God, I need it a lot. I need somebody talking to me about Jesus every day. Otherwise, sin will deceive me. That's why Hebrews will later stress the importance of meeting together regularly. Right? Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Perseverance is a community project. It involves every one of us every day in each other's lives. What does healthy exhortation look like? Make it really easy for you. It looks like Hebrews. That's what he calls it. If you read chapter 13, verse 22, he says, bear with my word of exhortation. That's what he calls the whole letter. It's a word of exhortation. What is exhortation? This. You do for each other what this book does. He magnifies the glories of Christ. Worldly pleasures look like junk before Jesus. You think angels are something? Christ is better. You think Moses was great? Christ is better. You think the promised land was something? He's got a better rest coming. You think the world has pleasures? Christ are greater and they last forever and they're full. People are unfaithful. Christ's covenant is firm. Some boast in riches. Christ's riches are infinite. His kingdom is forever. His word truly satisfies the weary. That's how he does it. That's how he magnifies Christ and sets him before the church. And then he also takes us to places like Psalm 95, right? And he says, hey, listen up. The Holy Spirit speaks here. You want a prophetic word for 2020? I've got one for you. When you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. He sobers us with the reality of the situation. It's as if he says, we're on the front lines. The enemy is gaining ground. Brothers are weak. Some are about to surrender to the enemy. Your sister needs support. They're coming for you next. Why are you playing with dominoes? Wake up. Get up and fight. You can't be indifferent when life is war. Then in chapter 4, he takes us to Psalm 95 again, but this time he develops the promise of God's rest. So he's got warning in chapter 3, promise in chapter 4. He's holding that out. And all of that is framed by him reminding us of our identity in Christ. We are holy. We are his siblings. We are his fellow heirs. We are God's house. We are sharers in Christ. He's got the kingdom for you waiting, and he's got every strength you need. He's going to give it to you, so you make it. 
He undercuts the proud. He lifts up those who, uh, who are weak in the fight. And he reminds them because Jesus suffered when he is tempted. He's able to help you when you are tempted. For those slacking off, he urges them to stay in the race by looking to Jesus. This is how we need to do it for each other. Hebrews is a great book to imitate. I need brothers and sisters to do Hebrews on me. And I'm going to do Hebrews on you for a little while. That's what we all need. God's word to us here reminds us to redouble our efforts in caring for one another. To keep looking out for each other's well-being. It's also a good reminder of the massively significant role we play in helping each other make it to the end. We need to be familiar. and This is why we have a Membership Matters class. We want everybody in here coming into this church to be like, this is important. Your life depends on it. We need to be familiar enough with each other's lives that we'd actually know how to exhort one another. Right? Paul says we need to warn and we need to teach each other with all wisdoms. It's not just about lobbing Bible verses at each other. We have to do it with wisdom in ways that fit the occasion for what they're dealing, what they're struggling with. How weak are they? Who are they? How long have they been walking with Christ? But that means we have to spend time together. Right? It's nothing for Ben to sit down with me and look at my family budget and say, Hey, how's your budget serving your wife? Remember, she's your first ministry. Christ calls you to care for her and provide for her. Regularly, Chad or Michael or Jordan or Aaron or Nate, right? Somebody's sending me texts about Christ, our Redeemer. Don't forget whom we serve, brother. Keep going, bro. The cross is hard. The crown is worth it. Maybe it's just a scripture verse that, that they read that morning, followed by, I'm praying for you. What are they doing? They're serving my perseverance. They're caring for my soul. They're, they're making sure sin doesn't deceive me. They're keeping my eyes on Christ and His truth. Perseverance is a community project. So don't let anybody in this church go without exhortation. Each one of you can't do this for everybody else. I know that. But all of us can be doing it for a few. Also, you may receive exhortation from this pulpit every Sunday, but you need more than that. You need it every day. And so if you don't have that happening in your life, don't leave today without pulling someone inside and saying, look, if I'm going to make it to the end, I need you doing this for me. And I want to do it for you. And if you're not doing it for others, make today the last day of that laziness. And start doing it. Eternity is at stake. Not only yours, but theirs. More importantly, though, do it because it is right and appropriate 
for us to come before the Lord and sing and shout and kneel down and bow before his presence. It's not just that his rest will be great for us. It's that he's, total, it's that he's truly worthy of our total adoration and obedience. Not only did he create us, but he redeemed us. And he brought us out of that bondage called sin. There's no greater display of love, brothers and sisters. Christ died, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. And he's leading us there now into an eternal rest and glory. So give him yourself because he is worthy. Give him your obedience because he is worthy. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, the Holy Spirit says. Let's take this effort again. This podcast is brought to you by Redeemer Church, a community of believers in Fort Worth, Texas, committed to equipping God's people to delight in God's glory and declare that glory to our neighbors and the nations. For more information, visit our website at RedeemerFortWorth.org.